0: You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoy listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome along to another episode of the Vet Chat. Today, we're... um... Well, I suppose we're we're building on a successful podcast that we've had previously. So one of the one of the most successful ones we've had, which was actually with Mary Van Andel talking about the the increased risk, I suppose you'd say, of foot and mouth um, with the Indonesian outbreak. So obviously we we struck a bit of a chord with people. We got a lot of people interested. So we thought we'd maybe go a little bit deeper into some of the things that we got into with Mary. So I'm joined by Mark Eames who is an incursion investigator.
1: Yes, that's right, Matt. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, incursion investigator. There are incursion investigators of plants and aquatic organisms and everything.
0: So officially, I guess I'm an incursion investigator of animal disease. So the reason for getting Mark on is somebody who's on the ground who actually is dealing with the whole sort of process of what happens. Yeah, what what we're looking for, what exotic diseases we're actually trying to find, um, trying to, well, hopefully not find, I suppose, but um, what we're looking for and you know, what the whole process is like and the idea being to to just, like I say, sort of build on what we did and, and I guess it, there's always that thought that this is just all about foot and mouth and the idea is to sort of make sure people are clear that there's much more that we're looking for and I guess to to sort of take that that. Era, i suppose of reporting out of it i mean we talked a bit about it with mary that you know, there's a bit of an intimidation factor of oh crikey should i should i report this and so hopefully just getting people actually really keen to to make sure they are reporting so a little bit of background on you mark you're a 2012 graduate but to be fair you've got about as much gray in your beard as i have so you're obviously you're an adult student, I guess. You were in your 30s when you started at vet school, by the sound of things, were you?
1: Yeah, that, that's right, Matt. I was 33 when I started at Massey. So okay. I was sort of, a, I guess, a generation uh, older, or half a generation older than the cohort, uh, I guess you'd say, and um, oldest in the class, or one of the oldest. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I was I was the youngest in my class, but uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> we were a few... We're a few years separate in, in um, graduation, but I'd say we're probably about that same generation, I think. And actually probably quite, in a, in a lot of ways, probably a similar background, actually. Both of us, well, I grew up on a sheep and beef farm. You did as well. You were down in the Rangataiki. I was up in um, in the Bay of Plenty. Sorry, not Rangataiki, Rangitiki. Rangitiki. Um, Yeah, different places. And you make the comment, your parents diversified into tourism. Which, funnily enough, my parents did too, but that's probably a different story. But what what kind of tourism? It's quite a change from sheep and beef farm stuff, isn't it? Yeah,
1: well, our old farm was right on the banks of the Rangitike River, and my parents saw potential for adventure activities on the river because they were into those sort of activities themselves. Mm. Um, and started a, a river adventure company, Rangitike River Adventures, in the 1980s. We had rafting, jet boating, bungee jumping, Uh, We had a cafe, a service station, a farm to run as well. So there was a lot to do. And so um, I left school and got into that and then spent about 15 years working in that. And then in my early 30s, I guess I had a bit of a reset, got married and started investigating more serious careers and thought, well, vet always interested me back then. So I thought I'd look into it and did the old 10 days work experience at the local Hunterville Vet Club and yep, there's
0: uh, a few few famous names around there
1: yeah there are old <laughs> martin walsh there he was yep. um he was in huntable young farmers club with me as well when i was way back in the day
0: so i suppose you you kind of did your time you got into practice and then you yeah. you've got out i suppose into into being in a an incursion investigator what i guess i'm kind of intrigued it's a different kind of role i guess as a practitioner I mean uh, maybe we have this vision of of people sort of sitting around by the bat phone waiting for it to go and then leap into action but is that I mean what how does it work on a daily basis and what kind of stuff do you actually do?
1: Yeah well, I guess day to day I mean the primary responsibility for us is to be available 24-7 on, on yeah. that hotline. Admittedly you know in the three years I've been in the job I've pro- probably only had two or three calls that are at a, what you'd call an ungodly hour, I suppose. And the big difference with being on call in this job compared to being on call in practice is that I don't actually have to go out in the wet and cold yeah. and do something. I have to get somebody else to go out in the wet and cold <laughs> and do something, usually. <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, it's alongside, obviously, if it was only waiting for the phone to ring on that hotline, we'd be drinking a lot of tea and looking at each other. So we do have plenty of other work to get on with.
0: So where are you based?
1: So I, I live on the Kapiti Coast in Raumati South, but the office for me is the Animal Health Laboratory in Wallaceville.
0: Oh yeah, in uh-huh. Wallaceville,
1: yep. Yeah, yep. which is and the uh-huh. old ag, old NAF research station. Mm-hmm. And now with a new, brand new $87 million building that only opened uh, two years ago last week,
0: Crikey. How does a building
1: cost eighty-seven million dollars? It's got Jesus. all the bells and whistles. That thing, yeah. <laughs> they spend a lot of the money on the lab, though. So our office buildings are still uh, oh, yeah, from yeah. the seventies. <laughs> I can I can see. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, I can yeah. see. Yeah, you can sink a few million dollars into. Yeah, and my wife's actually done a bit of stuff setting labs up, and yeah, oh, they're, yeah. they're not cheap. So, yeah. yep.
1: Yeah, so the reason for us to be based there is because it's important to be closely aligned with the scientists in the testing that's available there that's not available anywhere else in the country.
0: Hmm. Right. So obviously, incursion investigators, you're all vets. So the five of us
1: currently in my team are all vets. That's right. We have to be um, New Zealand-registered vets. And we... It's sort of a prerequisite that we have spent some time in practice. Um, we definitely all have. Yeah, I think all of us have spent sort of at least five to seven years in practice. And I think that's quite important so we can relate to the important
0: notifiers. Yeah, it's has been like my job, quite important that you've spent some time yeah. in practice as well. You can yeah. relate to people. but So, and obviously important that you've got the general practice, but I would imagine some experience of exotic disease as well, pretty important too. Yeah, that's right, Matt. So ideally,
1: an investigator would get overseas to see foot and mouth disease as early yeah. as possible so that we have that experience. Uh, I guess there's a lot of people too that are practicing in New Zealand that might have seen it in the outbreaks in the UK or mm. in other countries, but yes. I hadn't done because I
0: was a late starter. and uh <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. yeah. To about my age, you probably, you potentially have seen it, but not if you didn't start vet school until, until you yeah. were in your thirties. But yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah,
1: um, so it took a while, but I managed to get over to Kenya late last year to uh, Nakuru and went on a foot and mouth disease recognition training course.
0: Yeah, that's uh 'cause I know there were a group that actually or there was a group that went to Nepal as well, wasn't there? Um, a few years ago. Um, so you were probably a bit late for that one, but yeah, so that's not necessarily the incursion investigators, that's the next wave that the, the sort of field vets that are trained up were, were sent to Nepal, is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I think back in the
1: early teens Australia was starting to do some courses in Nepal, and New Zealand sort of piggybacked on the back of that and then took some groups over. Most of those were what we call IIVs, and so that's quite a, I guess, important group to describe on this chat. IIV stands for Initial Investigating Veterinarian, and so in IIV, we have 30 of them roughly uh, that are distributed around the country geographically. A lot of people maybe have one in their practice or know of one in the area. Yeah, those those people, most of them would have gone on a course in Nepal or potentially Africa or South America or, or somewhere, yeah.
0: Somewhere nice and exotic. for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we might come back to them and how they yeah. sort of play out in the process of the sort of responding to an investigation, I suppose, or a suspected case. So... I I guess we started out saying this is not just about foot and mouth and basically all we've talked about talked yeah. about is foot and mouth, but there's there are plenty of other things that you've probably done and learned in your in your time, um, or that you that you've had to train up on for an incursion investigation. So what what other stuff is there out there that you get to do, I suppose?
1: Yeah, I guess that's quite important to emphasise is that this whole system and the hotline and the perception of the urgency around everything and you know everything needs to happen within minutes and you know all this high octane stuff it is all based on foot and mouth which is Mm. you know highly contagious and fast moving but yeah for sure most of our investigations and our I guess readiness is around other exotic diseases that are not quite so what's the word glamorous or <laughs> De- destroying <laughs> uh, uh, devastating. Kind of
0: foot and mouth and glamorous. Devastating. Yeah, that's probably better. Um sexy? That's yeah. probably yeah. Mm, not really the um, word either. And obviously that's that's super important, but um what well, there are plenty of others, so so what else are we looking for? Um what's on you know, what's on the list and um what's I guess of those what's really topical, what are you most concerned about, I suppose, too?
1: Yeah, I, I mean I guess topical um you'd have to say avian influenza yeah. globally is very topical because it is spreading outside what you would have, would have considered its endemic range. This is high path strains yeah. of avian influenza. Um it's important to remember we do have low pathogenic strains here in New Zealand as well as, you know,
0: globally. Right. And and topical obviously because of the potential Zoonotic risk, I suppose, is, is the big reason really yeah. that they so they become really tough. I mean, they're devastating enough to, to birds as well, but it's that yeah. zoonosis, um, you know, the zoonotic risk, that's the, the big concern, I suppose, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I guess so. The zoonotic risk, but also just the effects of our control or people's control methods when there is an outbreak in a commercial flock. Yeah. I guess it's very economically, <laughs> It's a huge disease for the poultry industry as well but yeah we still have never had a case of high pathogenic avian influenza in this country i mean like a lot of these diseases we're very lucky to have such isolation from other land masses and we're not really on high traffic migratory pathways for birds that
0: harbor yeah, I was just thinking that, apart from, what is it, Godwits or something, I suppose, there's a few of those types of things. But, yeah, there's there's yeah. a few things that come to it, but they're sort of the exception around the rule, I suppose, for migration, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and uh, I actually heard a term only uh, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you've heard of it, called migratory culling. No. It's the, I guess it's the um, concept that a, a disease like the high pathogenic strains of influenza the length of time it takes to migrate here is longer than the incubation period of mm. the disease. So, I mean, I guess I don't want to make light of the fact that there is still a risk of entry, but the fact that we haven't had it into here yet sort mm. of tells us that distance that yeah. the animals have to fly is is protecting us somewhat. I guess we also need to remember there are other potential pathways as well. Mm, mm. Of course, yeah. yeah,
0: and other avian diseases that could show up as well.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah. So there's um, New, Newcastle disease. That again, New Zealand hasn't had a, a case of the high pathogenic strain. We do have the low path Newcastle disease show up at times too, which is a avian paramyxovirus. Another one that's been quite topical because of its spread in Australia is West Nile virus, which also has birds uh, as quite an important part of the cycle.
0: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, just thinking about the migratory stuff that you're talking about, there there are birds that sort of zip across the Tasman, I suppose, so that's a source of um, introduction too, isn't it? Yeah, they're not
1: common, but yeah, possibly. So, yeah, those bird viruses, we we do quite a lot of investigations on bird mortalities of the other diseases we're concerned about. Obviously, African swine fever, you know, over the last sort of decade has been rapidly spreading globally, especially Mm -hmm. in our direction, big time. Um, Yeah,
0: it's actually, I mean, African swine fever, in in a funny sort of a way, did some favours for the New Zealand red meat industry because, yeah, yeah. all the the issues in, in Asia, wasn't it? So, yeah, um, yeah, but obviously we don't want it here. But
1: no, uh, it's, um, and it's definitely one we'd w- we we want to keep out. And I guess I'll put in a bit of a plug for the importance of avoiding swill feeding. You know, to pigs we do. Mm. You know, obviously one of the great things about pigs is you can feed all your scraps to them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, but that's definitely a risk pathway for that disease, just like it is with foot and mouth as well.
0: Mm. when i was at vet school it was sort of the classic pathway of what the mouth getting in was yeah. you know the sailor coming in with his salami and chucking it into the you know into a scrap bin that got fed to a pig and yeah. all that sort of sort of stuff so
1: yeah, yeah. and absolutely. that's still yeah that's still hugely relevant so i mean we haven't we have quite strict regulations around you know cooking food scraps to 100 degrees celsius for an hour
0: but does it really happen you know we hope it does as much as possible well, there's um, not going to be much of anything left if you cook something mm. at 100 degrees Celsius for an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let alone yeah. Um, any viruses, but
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess uh, classical swine fever, yep. it sort of goes along with African swine fever with ag- yeah. risk-wise. We, I think, eradicated that in the 1950s. We we might have had that already in New Zealand uh, right. a long time ago. Algeski's disease, similar. We had that back in the day, but we haven't seen yeah. a case of that. You, yeah, you, you wouldn't, I guess, completely rule out that there could be Alzheisky's disease in the wild pig population, but you'd think we would have found it again by now. Porcine reproductive respiratory syndrome virus, mm. virus, yeah, that's a big mm. one that pork industry are worried about. I guess there are diseases of horses like equine influenza, which was, I guess, the last sort of close outbreak to us kiwis was around new south wales and i think 2007
0: mm, and the racing stables and stuff wasn't it yeah, yeah and
1: that and that caused a lot of disruption mm. to you know that they had to lock down horse movements and the, the mm. vaccination program there was a little That's bit right. of a standstill here for a few days apparently while they mm. sorted out which horses had come in from there but yeah equine influenza is always a i guess on the radar African horse sickness has been spreading as well out of Africa. There's been some cases of that around Thailand as well. I'm not sure a bit closer than that. Other cattle ones are there is lumpy skin disease, which before foot and mouth was notified in Indonesia, all the headlines for Australian farmers was this lumpy skin disease that had also arrived in Indonesia only a month or two before. And that's a pox virus that has also been spreading remarkably quickly across Asia and down across Indonesia. Now it's very much on the doorstep of Australia. The concerning thing about that is that we do have vectors here.
0: Right. What are the vectors? The like?
1: Stomoxys, uh, the stable okay. fly. Oh, right, yeah, biting mm, fly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's hard, hard to really see how it could get in unless it was on illegally imported products because we have quite strict import health standards. Obviously no live cattle are imported to New Zealand yeah, and haven't been for decades now.
0: Mm. hasn't stopped the odd thing coming in, I suppose, still. But yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, it is potentially one of the things that can happen. I mean, obviously, we've got that vector here already and we've had it for mm. a long time. i have be bitten by the odd one of those. God, they're nasty yeah, bloody. They hands. are. They are. hurt. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, they a real nuisance in the cow shed, too, aren't they? Milk and time. Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. But I mean, one of the concerns must be the spread of some of these vectors, the arrival of vectors for, for other diseases, too. I mean, you know, we're lucky we've only got one type of tick and we don't have um, some of the, the mosquitoes and biting midges and things that cause disease. But, you know, the, yeah. that's obviously got to be on your radar a bit, too, those vectors, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, and that's actually a field that I've become involved in a bit as a subject matter expert for the Arbovirus Surveillance Program. Okay. I don't know if you know much about that, but it's a a program that involves, well, I mean, one component of it is the hotline. So that's our passive surveillance for blue tongue, bovine, ephemeral fever, epizootic hemorrhagic fever. These are all diseases that are spread by culicoides, midges. Mm. It fascinates me that New Zealand is really the only significant land mass in the world that doesn't have fulicoides apart from uh, Antarctica. But it's interesting to me that they haven't become established here. We do sero surveillance where we bleed and we take blood samples from the uh, freezing works all over the northern North Island at this time of year. But alongside that, we have traps that are designed especially to catch culicoides. And the way we know that they're going to catch culicoides is that they catch the similar midges that we do have here. Mm. So we do have quite an active surveillance program for
0: arboviruses. And for the non-large animal vets who are listening, there'll be a few companion animal things that are on the list as well.
1: Yeah, yep, that's right. So brucellosis is one that we investigate with some frequency um, around dogs with orchitis or will often exclude brucellosis as a cause of testicular inflammation when they're castrated. Or in um, we actually have a current case on at the moment in a dog population with um, poor reproductive performance, abortions and stillbirths, where we are excluding brucellocanus. You know, there's plenty of other differentials that it's mm. more likely to be, but it's uh, an opportunity for us to use those situations to, I guess if we investigate thoroughly a disease that is imitating an exotic disease, we can tell that story through mm. through our surveillance magazine and Mm. I guess it bolsters our proof of freedom from these diseases and, and our overseas partners can read those, you know, it's all transparent. They can see, you know, based around this poor repro performance in a in a population of dogs, we tested X number of dogs and we got these test results and, you know, it gives people confidence because really it's just about telling that story and um, people believe. Yep. You. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. It's actually, it, it sounds like it's kind of similar to what was done investigating BSE for years in New Zealand, um, which actually we've done quite well to get this far down a list and not even mention BSE or mad cow disease, yeah. but we had that whole program of just investigating anything with a CNS signs basically. Um, taking the brains out and sending them away so kind of on a, on a larger scale I suppose there's a monitoring thing just being able to say to the markets look we're looking at everything that's showing any signs of it and we're not finding it yep. so yeah and that's probably a big part of your role isn't it it's, it's actually trying really hard to find things and prove that they're not there as much as trying to find them if that makes sense
1: yeah exactly like I just said before um, anything that mimics something that's exotic that we want to exclude uh, any mm-hmm. opportunity we get we you know, we want to test for those things. I should put in a plug actually for the TSE surveillance program because that's still very important and MPI still do offer rewards to vets and farmers for appropriate samples from the appropriate age animals with CNS signs. And mm, okay. so that, yeah, that's still still a very active program that we're keen to keep receiving samples for, not just cattle, but from deer and sheep.
0: Yeah, well scrapie. I mean that's that's a disease that yeah. I mean you mentioned ones that we've had in New Zealand and, and got rid of. Um yeah, there there was an outbreak of scrapie years ago, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, or, and not far from here actually, I think on Mun Island, which was a
0: Yes, there was out on an island. Mun yeah, Island which is probably lucky.
1: Yeah. When would that have been? In the sixties there's some some old like photos yeah, of burning piles. Yeah, that yeah. you know uh we hope never to see, but thankfully that wasn't on our mainland and mm. I think that was the end of it.
0: I actually got reasonably good at taking a brain out, but that's quite a good, quite a good skill to have. It's yeah, probably. It's a it's good thing it's a vet-only podcast. Oh, well, I'm sure there's the odd non-vet listening to it, but yeah, taking brains out being a skill is sort of a that kind of conversation. But um but yeah, do you still do a bit of training on that? Do you still every now and again just try and upskill people on that type of thing?
1: It's actually something we've been discussing lately is producing a good YouTube video of demonstrating yeah. how to get a brain out. It's a good idea and I think we are probably the right ones to <laughs> to do it. So yeah, it is something that that we've been thinking about mm, lately. Mm, it's a, great it's a good skill to have for sure. And um mm, mm. and even even for a lot of endemic diseases the the brain's a pretty useful organ. Sometimes. Yeah, well,
0: yeah. and if you don't quite know how to do it, you just end up with a big pile of mush by the time, yeah, <laughs> by yeah, time totally. you're finished and be there for about yeah. for about an hour and a half, sort of hacking away at stuff. So yeah. yeah, it's good good to actually have some guidance on what to do. So, Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a pretty good overview of everything, I think, unless there's anything else you can think of that, that you're looking for that so comes to mind that you haven't mentioned.
1: No, I think that, kind of covers the the big ones i guess the other point is that in the time leading up to the detection of mycoplasma bovis Mm. if there was a podcast being done in 2000 and what 17 and you were asking the incursion investigators what they were worried about, they might not have mentioned by the placement <laughs> boats.
0: <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to go there. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. I was yeah. thinking the same thing.
1: So, I guess yeah. that what I'm trying to say is that mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the big bad ogres that yes. are going to get you, yeah. it's the sneaky ones that.
0: Well, um, and and actually, the other one, you know, if you were doing this sort of um, maybe 12, 15 years ago, Tyleria probably wouldn't have been on your list yeah. either. Yeah, that's right. And not that it's really an exotic disease, or we don't think so. It's probably more an emerging disease, but Tarasovai lepto, or whatever we want to call it, or Species X, or whatever it's going to be named. But you know, some of the ones with the biggest impact might not be the ones that you expect. So it's good to just look for anything that's different, I suppose, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I guess that's why we try and emphasise the emerging disease Mm. side of what we do. It's not just about excluding the ones that we know about, but it's about going, hey, there's something... Even if it's a disease that we have and we know about, but it's behaving differently, you know, it's mm. um, increasing mm. in prevalence or it's showing up differently clinically, things like that. If you're thinking that as a vet in the field, there may be others thinking the same thing, but if we don't tell each other through mm. some system, it could get missed. So yeah, I'd just like to sort of promote our hotline as a, I guess, a central place Where people can go, hey, there's something not quite right here, and then we go, oh yeah, someone else is saying that, and you can start to build a picture.
0: Yeah, which is a good point, and perhaps that's a good chance to discuss that. You know, what what actually happens if you do go, this doesn't look right, and yeah, I think I might have mentioned it when I was talking to Mary as well, but I remember at vet school, and there's always that kind of lingering sort of fear of what if I'm the one that misses it you know what if I what if something happens and I you know and I I don't find it and I remember one of our lecturers saying look you actually develop a practitioner's sense extremely quickly and you kind of because you see so many normal animals you know you're Mm -hmm. constantly seeing things that are normal you very quickly recognize when something just isn't right so I think you you probably trust your instincts that this just doesn't seem right it doesn't look right yeah, and I suppose that's that. Just making sure that you do trust your instincts, and you and you get on the phone and you talk to somebody like yourself. But so if you if you do that, if you see something and you don't like the look of it, even if you you might think you know what it is, what is the what does the process look like? What do you actually you know what happens when when a vet goes? Oh, crocky, I might call the the eight hundred number.
1: Yeah, I guess the main thing is that we aren't going to turn up. And abseil out of a black helicopter, and you know, cause a great scene. It sounds like what you did your training in before you went to vet school. So, so I'd love yeah. to do that, but <laughs> but that's not You'd how we. Be quite well
0: equipped to do it, but yeah, it's, it's a shame.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's not quite how we how we operate. Uh, so if you ring the the oh eight hundred number, I guess the first thing is it it doesn't actually dial straight to my phone. You'll be talking mm. to a call centre where there are people that are not vets that will take your details.
0: So a bit like an after hours call for most vet practices. I mean, yeah, obviously if somebody rings up after hours they they get a somebody manning the after hours phones in most cases before it goes through to the vet. Yeah, that's right. And
1: those those people you you'll talk to, they'll be responding to calls to the plants, the you know, that they'll they'll be fielding a lot more calls than just veterinary disease calls. Yep. But, what they'll do is they'll allocate the call to our team, and they will email us the details and page us so we we carry a, a pager that'll go off and basically alert us to check our emails
0: so is it still actually a, an old fashioned pager? Yeah,
1: it is, so we have to check our emails straight away when we get that and now nowadays with the smartphones it's you know it's in our yeah. pocket anyway, and depending on what The small amount of detail is on that email, we will call you back within, well, if you're on farm and it's a vesicular or FMD that you're worried about, we'll call you back within 15 minutes, any time of day or night. And then we will basically have a discussion about what you've found and ask for you to send through any information. And and technology has really transformed this job, I imagine, with the fact that we can get photos and videos immediately sent from the farm Mm. to us and it's not just us as individuals but we have a team there now so we can then distribute those photos to or videos through the whole team Mm. along with what you're describing along with the any lab results that you might have got to date along with the images and you know some history and epi details like number affected this is out of how big a mob we'll ask all those sort of questions talk about any risk Mm. pathways and so we'll start building a picture i guess in our minds of how urgent this is whether whether we need Mm -hmm. to respond immediately and that's where the iiv system comes in or whether we will respond slightly less urgently but still you know we want to find out what this is but we don't need to kind of shut things down Or or something that's been going, you know, it could be something that's been going on for for months. You're just going,
0: oh, this is not quite right. So that IIV is kind of the first line. So you go, oh, I better get this checked. And then, so somebody who's local will be the first one to come in, who, who may actually even, I mean, I'm sure in a lot of cases, perhaps the vets aren't even aware. It might be somebody within their own practice or, you know, probably from a neighboring practice or something like that is going to show up, have a look probably seen foot and mouth or seen some of these exotic diseases. I know we keep coming back to foot and mouth, but, you know, seeing a lot of these exotic diseases have a lot more knowledge than most of us do, so can kind of give a bit more of an informed opinion and then decide whether it goes to the next level, I guess. Yeah,
1: that's pretty much it.
0: So the IIV
1: are, I guess, trained in recognising, especially, like we keep saying, yeah, especially foot and mouth, but other exotics that we've been talking Mm. about, Mm. and know what, questions to ask specific to those so they will always try and visit the property with the vet that notified obviously that like the farmer has that relationship with their own vet so they're not going to turn up without you know the notifier being there with them if possible or if not possible then at least with their blessing to the farmer I guess and yeah they'll, they'll generally go through a process on the farm where they'll investigate or they'll examine enough animals and ask enough questions to where they can then feed that information back to us as a team in Wallaceville mm. and we can hopefully stand it down at that point if mm. if we can't then it becomes what we call a not negative or uh, yeah mm-hmm. a not negative situation so it's it's not positive but it's not negative <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then we will go out ourselves to then look at whether we need to to get some samples to the lab to get tested
0: so how many times a year do you actually or i mean how how often does this happen
1: so we get around 300 notifications so that's where someone calls the hotline and it pertains to animal diseases we investigate about 180 of those so about three-fifths of the notifications become investigations of those 300 a year only five or six are investigated by our network of IIVs. Right,
0: and most of them you can deal with by photos and discussion yeah. and, and videos, and yeah, just just every now and again, every couple of months, somebody has to go out on farm, and then, yeah. obviously by the sounds of things, not that often you actually have to end up on farm.
1: No. Well, for the foot and mouth as a differential, we don't know. It would be unusual for it to get to that point. Yep. But for other emerging conditions and other other diseases we we might get out on farm a little bit more most of the sample taking and um, examining of animals even outside that irv network we get practicing vets to do that work for us
0: so it's actually i mean that's quite reassuring i think that you know there's a good process that is pretty non-intrusive i suppose as a practitioner you know you're sort of just it's a discussion It's you know it's not the reaction's probably appropriate i would say there's not an overreaction of like bringing somebody in every time there's a phone call it sounds like it's not an underreaction either it sounds like it's about right to me so yeah i guess that's the point it's what you're trying to do trying to be pragmatic
1: yeah i mean we're aware that it needs to be a system that is not onerous or that people aren't freaked out by or you know what the the last thing we ever want is someone to ring the hotline and have an experience where they go geez I'm never ringing those clowns again
0: (laughs) (laughs) so we (laughs) you know
1: we really need to be measured and we need to be as least disruptive as we can to everybody just so that because because it's really important to us that people will call us um, and Mm. not that we don't want roadblocks in place at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I can vouch for that. I mean, I've, I've done, and again, I think I've probably mentioned this to Mary. So, you know, for those that have listened to that as well, I'm sorry, you're like my kids, you're hearing the stories repeatedly um, as I get reminded. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, that you know, I've, I've been in both those situations. I've been seen something I didn't like the look of, which I think was malignant pteral fever in the end and you know ringing somebody up and having the conversation and yeah exactly that it was it was just a collegial discussion that was reassuring that was you know i felt much better by the time we got to the end of it yeah. um took some samples ended up with a diagnosis so and i've also been in the situation of seeing something and going oh nah i'll be all right and, you know i don't think it's anything too much and, and actually probably losing some sleep afterwards, going oh god i should have but you know so I can tell you it's, Better to actually get on the phone and, and have the discussion with somebody than, than to sort of think, nah, she'll be right. So I guess of those ones that you do end up actually investigating, there's probably a few decent stories out there, some unusual, interesting ones that have come up in recent times.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I love about this job is that day to day you just never know what you're going to get and every notification is slightly different, every investigation is different. You know, we can have our SOPs and, you know, for the more common ones or for the more important ones, but a lot of it, you know, we need to respond accordingly to, to, to the situation.
0: So using your practitioner skills really, which is yeah. you know how being a practitioner works. I suppose it's you can't do diagnosis by SOPs. There's a yeah, that's you know, what's in front of you. So yeah, yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, a lot about what we do is about managing people and managing expectations. Something else about our investigations that may be attractive to vets to know is that even when we exclude an exotic differential. We do like to help get to a diagnosis as well, and so mm-hmm. there's you know there'll be funding available for that, so it's another i guess another bit of a carrot for vets that is <laughs> that are stuck with a problem yeah, uh, that yeah and and if <laughs> the farmers have hit the wall and they've gone, "Oh look this is costing me too much. you guys are getting nowhere, it might just be something that we consider worth funding.
0: It's got to sort of get over that bar that it's justifiable. Yeah. It's not just throwing money at anything that you're that you're interested. Yeah, in no, I mean we've got, got to, it,
1: yeah, yeah, we've got to be mindful that it is taxpayer money, <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> uh, we're not gonna. Yeah, we're not gonna throw throw money at everything. But if it's mm. you know if it is something new um, mm. emerging, then mm. I guess that's something that we have a um, a little bit of control over where we can decide. Not not necessarily me personally, but as a team or slightly higher than me, we can decide whether something's worth spending a bit of money on.
0: Mm, I mean, there's probably been a few kind of interesting ones that have come out of doing that, um, investigating like that.
1: Yeah, I've been looking into a, a bit of an unusual or emerging disease in the, in the last couple of years with VS vets, like food safety vets from the freezing works, where oh. one day I got a notification that a VS vet had found four mixed age ewes dead in the in the yards, um, in the anti mortem yards. And she opened those up and found that they'd all bled into their chest, so massive hemothorax in all four of them so spontaneously ruptured their aorta. You know, to have four happen at once was yeah. what triggered her to ring. If it was yeah, you know, if it was one it would have been another, you know, just a unexplained sudden death in the yards but um from that we with her her help we we actually put out a call to all of the vets around new zealand and asked if anyone else had been seeing this and sure enough people did start notifying more of them and we've Hmm. got a bit of a series of cases now where where this is happening and we're getting to sort of look into it which is Hmm. super interesting yeah there, yeah. there might be more about that come out in the future. But if anyone's listening and they have any comments about that I'd be interested to hear it as well.
0: It's probably be one of those things that yeah, they're sort of sporadic and yeah, I'm sure like like you said, you know, you see one here or one mm-hmm. there and you don't think much of it. But um and you probably don't post more than many of them either, but yeah, it's uh yeah. seeing <laughs> four at once is pretty odd.
1: Yeah, and that's oh, I guess that's what got me interested too. Is that if this is happening at the freezing works in these mixed-age ewes pre-slaughter, then how many are dying on on mm. the farm in the yards mm. Um, mm. in the stressful yarding event or something like that, and they just get turfed in the hole? You know, people aren't necessarily opening them up yeah. to have a look at, at what is actually quite an easy condition to diagnose if you, any any yeah. farmer could look
0: inside and see it. That's obviously, yeah, tip of the iceberg sort of stuff. Yeah, possibly. yeah. One thing that you put on here that that got my attention was that you've actually had to be trained in snake handling, which I I don't know is going to encourage a lot of people into becoming incursion investigators, but that must have been a bit interesting.
1: Oh, yeah, well, it's funny you say that because it wasn't something I even knew was a feature of this job, and I would have come into the category of of those people that would say that I hate snakes and I really couldn't stand the things.
0: Well, you're from New Zealand, that's pretty natural. Never had any
1: experience (laughs) with them. But I got offered the opportunity to go on a snake handling course. It's not that we all have to be snake handlers, but the members of the team that deal with snakes don't take the 24-7 pager like we do. So we triage all this live snake notifications ourselves. So it kind of makes sense that we can respond ourselves as well. Mm. So there's three of us in the team are... Uh, snake handler trained.
0: So, I mean, you just said all the live snake notifications. I mean, so we actually do have live snake notifications occasionally.
1: We do, yeah. We and more more often than people might think. I mean, a lot a lot of them we are able to stand down based off information that we gather immediately off the phone. We do get eels that are right. notified. Yep. We yep. get sea snakes or crates true, and those are whilst rarely seen you know at certain times of the year especially in the northern waters they do get spotted and people that have never seen one before Mm. will notify us Mm. so we get a few sea snakes we get a few eels we get a few toys (laughs) Um, you know (laughs) a toy snake that someone's too scared to go and investigate further (laughs) Um, right there's something the something day in the long grass but... <laughs> yeah the, the day I got back from from my snake training or maybe the few days after I got a notification from a, a guy who saw a snake on the northwestern motorway in Auckland and it was on the inside of the fast lane oh, and he was adamant it was a snake it was definitely a snake and he was a credible you know I think he was a biologist or something so we had to organize traffic control and get a snake handler to go out there based on the credibility. Because even if it's not alive, we still want trained handlers mm-hmm. to pick them up, even dead ones. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a toy snake, but it was extremely realistic. Very, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it causes a lot of disruption.
0: Yeah, you think if you're going to have a toy snake, you don't want it to look too much like a real one, but... yeah.
1: But right. have, we have we have had a couple of live ones sneak in since I've been on the job over the last three years. Some people might recall there was uh, electrical ducting that someone was laying in a drain, and a snake, and a python, snuck out the end of it.
0: It popped its head out. Yes.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the odd one can get through in, in an imported vehicle.
0: Occasionally, hear the odd story. Yeah, it's um well rather you than me, but um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an, it's not quite what I expected to hear that snake wrangling was a part of the job. Yeah, but, um, I have
1: to say yeah. it was the course was almost life changing though, and in, in that it changed my complete perception of snakes. And, you know, I have a healthy respect now rather than a fear.
0: Right, were you involved in all the stuff with the dying birds and the what's eventually it turned out to pretty be botulism? Are you caught up in that at all? I don't know
1: which specific event you're talking about, Matt, but we do get involved in bird mass mortality investigations quite often. If you Google I've found dead birds, what do I do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> if there's the threshold is three birds found in one spot, any more than three right. you ring you ring our hotline. Any less <laughs> than three you ring the doc dock hotline. But so MPI and doc, I guess we share a bit of responsibility for mass bird mortalities they're interested in it especially if it's in threatened species or they're interested in it for the for the bird side of things and we're interested in it for the opportunity to do surveillance for these exotic viruses yeah, so absolutely. we investigate quite a lot of those and just in the last few months we've had one at lake hot of on lake omepedi up north and Miranda, the bird coast. Yeah, yeah.
0: The, the Miranda one's the one I'm thinking. I think that yeah. that one was in the press of it. Um, yeah, yeah. I think there were stuff articles on it, and yeah, yeah, lots yeah. of comments around it.
1: It has quite an effect on communities when people yeah. are out and about in these you know these beautiful places and then there's piles of dead birds <laughs> it's it's quite apocalyptic I imagine. I haven't come <laughs> across it <Yes. laughs> you know I haven't come across yeah. it myself Hitchcock. yeah. yeah Hitchcockian. yeah but um, the, you know you can get I think you know like a were there there were upwards of a thousand birds picked up on a day. Jeez, and so, yeah, it's it's pretty horrendous. And we use that as a, like I say, as a opportunity for influenza in Newcastle uh, exclusion. But we also try to help out with diagnostics to find out what is actually killing them. Avian botulism is quite a big problem, and it's quite difficult to diagnose as well. It's generally a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. <laughs> Um, yeah, you've kind of got
0: to, yeah, probably got to find a few live ones, I suppose, with the flaccid paralysis, I suppose, to
1: confirm yeah, it. Do you? Yeah, you go go a lot on the behavioural signs, clini- mm. clinical mm. signs of of the live birds, for sure.
0: So, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, there's probably plenty of different diseases and various sort of investigations that you've been involved with. But is there anything else you you're thinking? I mean, I suppose we're we're probably um, uh, probably need to wrap up it's it's been a really really fascinating chat actually I think it's been quite enlightening for me and hopefully for people who are listening any final words that you want to add in Mark?
1: Yeah I mean I guess I I just hoped when I was given the opportunity to come on here it's a little bit out of my comfort zone putting, putting myself out of it <laughs> It's there, out of mind too yeah, <laughs> I've never been in a podcast before I was quite surprised to be asked but the, I guess the reason I said yes was because I'm quite passionate about this job and the importance to new zealand's New Zealand Inc. you know mm. the earlier we can detect something new, emerging exotic, then the less pain and <laughs> suffering for all around. Mm. so a, a huge part of that is that we have the system set up that's accessible, that's that people know about, that people aren't afraid to call. And so I was hoping just to shed a bit of light on what we do and how we do it. And hopefully at the end of it, people are thinking that they will pick up the phone and call us if, mm. if they feel like there is something they're worried about.
0: I agree. I mean, it's it's hugely important. I mean, we all know, you know, and we've probably all seen well, in New Zealand and in, and in other countries how important it is to catch anything early, no matter what it is. So, yeah, I completely agree. And, yeah, hopefully, the, like, like you say, the listeners are all quite reassured about what, what will happen and that listening to somebody like yourself who sounds like a decent human being um, on the other end of the phone is probably, probably quite helpful, actually, rather than yeah. just a sort of faceless person that might be on the other end of the line. So,
1: yeah
0: and it's great. really enjoyed that. So thanks very much, Mark.
1: Yeah, no worries, Matt. Good
0: chatting to you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Vet Chat NZ proudly brought to you by Vuback. If you made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email matt.wells at vubac.co.nz or call 800 Vuback.